Buongiorno, benvenuto. Welcome to episode 13 of City Breaks Florence, an episode which is going to be devoted mainly to the Palazzo Pitti. I'm going to start by talking briefly about two things that you're bound to pass on your way across the Arno to the Palazzo Pitti, namely the Ponte Vecchio and the Vasari Corridor. Then I'd like to give a history of the six or seven generations of the Medici family who lived in the Palazzo Pitti. So that's from the moving in of Duke Cosimo I and family in the 16th century to the dying out of the family in the mid-18th century. And then talk a little bit about what there is actually to see there if you visit today. And finally finish with a section on two artists who have both got some pictures displayed in the art gallery, which is part of the Palazzo Pitti. So if you picture yourself standing in the northern half of Florence, and wanting to go south and across the River Arno to get to the Palazzo Pitti, your most obvious crossing point is the Ponte Vecchio. That's in fact the place which was the very first crossing point of the river that led to the development of the southern part of the city. And although this isn't the first bridge that was put up there, it does date from 1345. And it's been a well-known focal point of the city ever since then. I'm sure if you go and look at some postcard stands, it won't be long before you find quite a selection of ones showing the Ponte Vecchio, often lit up at night. As well as being a crossing point, it was a commercial venture because right from when it was built, it housed various shops which were mainly used in the early days by butchers and fishmongers. So even if you weren't wanting to cross the river, you may well have gone there to do some shopping. However, this did have its downside because they had a terrible habit of chucking all the offal and general leftover detritus into the river and it wasn't long before the smell was truly terrible. Ferdinando I, for example, used to talk about the vile arts of the people who did this. And before long, people began to think, well, maybe they would move the butchers and fishmongers elsewhere. So that was duly done. But because it had been a busy commercial centre, other shopkeepers decided that they couldn't let the opportunity pass to set up business in the newly abandoned shops, so they moved in, and they tended to be people like jewellers and goldsmiths. And even to this day, you'll see several of those sorts of shops still on the bridge, so if you want to buy some quite expensive souvenirs, there's the place to go. And the other building that you won't help but notice, um, apart from the Ponte Vecchio, or the old bridge, is the building known as the Vasari Corridor. The Vasari Corridor was, of course, built by the architect Giorgio Vasari, who had been commissioned by Duke Cosimo I. If you remember, Duke Cosimo and his wife Eleonora outgrew their home in the Palazzo Vecchio. By the time they got to, I think it was seven or eight children at the time, there wasn't really enough space and they decided to buy the Palazzo Pitti across the river and renovate it and move there. But Cosimo was still going to work from the Palazzo Vecchio, so he had an idea that partly for convenience and I think probably more as a status symbol and something to show his prestige he decided to have this interior walkway built to join the two palaces so he'd be able to get to work in whatever the weather and more importantly without meeting anybody if he didn't want to it would be a safe way to get to between the two palaces and he made sure that Vasari knew that he was in a hurry for this new prestige project and it was in fact built in record time. And that despite the fact that there were problems along the way. So as with so many building projects, they had to knock down a lot of other things, houses, towers, etc., to make room for the new corridor. And that meant telling a whole lot of people property that they owned would have to be demolished. 
In fact, a meeting was called involving all the families who owned these properties and almost all of them agreed that they would have their houses demolished, I think perhaps in an act of self-preservation. But there was an exception and that was the Manelli family. The proposed corridor was going to be built right through one of their towers and it wasn't any old tower because it was one of the four original towers which had been built to guard the bridge when it was first put up and they were fiercely opposed and kept stressing that this was a historical building, lots of sentimental value, etc. So Duke Cosimo wasn't quite sure what to do, and he consulted the Signoria, who came up with a plan. Perhaps it would be better to respect the will of the Manelli family, and to have the architect alter his design a little bit, so that the corridor would in fact go around the tower rather than through it. This was duly done, and sure enough, if you look on a map at the corridor you will see a kink in it and that's the reason. Today the tower is used as an art gallery and it's got all sorts of wonderful things inside it. Um, some Rubens, some Rembrandt, Velasquez, Delacroix but it's not routinely open to the public. If you book in advance you can go on a guided tour but you can't just turn up and queue and pay to get in. It is open quite a lot but they do close down for if they're hosting a fancy reception for visiting dignitaries or something so you just need to play it by ear a little bit. So having taken in those two sites on your way across the river you will come then to the Palazzo Pitti. Built in the 15th century by the Pitti family, that's P-I-T-T-I. More bankers and very almost but perhaps not quite as rich and influential and powerful as the Medici and Strozzi families. And in fact, that's very significant because when the head of the family at the time, so we're talking about 1440, one Luca Pitti decided to entrust the architect Brunelleschi to design a wonderful new palace for him and his family, he made it very clear that at least part of the point was to outdo what these two families had done themselves. So, for example, the arches over the windows in the new palace were to be as big as the doors in the Palazzo Medici, and there was to be a courtyard big enough to, in, to contain the Palazzo Strozzi in its entirety. It's like the one upmanship over the height of the towers, but taken to a new level. It took more than a 100 years to complete the building, and unfortunately, during this time, the fortunes of the Pitti family didn't go all that well. In fact, in 1550, so 110 years after building had started, the current member of the head of the family, one Bonacorso Pitti, was forced to admit that actually they couldn't see it through any further and they would have to sell. Worse still, because everyone knew they were desperate to sell, he could only get a not very good price. And even worse than that, the people who snapped it up were Duke Cosimo de' Medici and his wife. So exactly the people whose predecessors the Pitti family had been trying to outdo. Naturally for the Medici family this was an excellent opportunity to show their contempt for the Pitti family. So in addition to buying the palace and spending a lot of money making it even finer they ordered that the Pitti coats of arms which had been in every room, every corridor, every courtyard should all be removed. Then they had a new thought perhaps they would leave just one outside in in the road opposite the palace is one solitary coat of arms with the Pitti name on it, just to remind everybody that they used to own this palace, but sadly they no longer did. Under the new ownership, and particularly with the decorating and redesigning that the Medici did, it took on quite a Spanish ambiance. And that, of course, was due to the tastes of Eleonora, 
who, if you remember, had already had the Spanish chapel at the Church of Santa Maria Novella redesigned, and who now wanted to make this palace somewhere where she and her children would feel at home. And it's said that the daughters particularly were brought up here in, quote, chaste seclusion. A century or so after that, there was another event which had great significance, and that was the founding in 1657 of something called the Academia de Cimento, so the Academy of Experiments founded by one Leopoldo di Medici, actually based here. It was a group of scientists who came together, did their experiments, often actually in the Bobbly Gardens outside the palace, met to discuss their work, to learn from each other, to send report, bring back reports of travels that they'd been on and what they'd learnt in Europe, and whose motto was Provando e Riprovando which translates into English as something like try, try and try again. So it really was a forum for experiment, a place to build on the growing interest in science and how things worked and try and push knowledge forward. And in fact, it had such a good reputation that it became the model for other similar societies in other countries. And that would include the Royal Society in England and the Académie des Sciences based in Paris. The Academy was actually only open for about a decade. It closed in 1667 because Leopoldo became a cardinal and had to move to Rome. But its influence was far reaching. And it was a very Florentine institution, building, of course, on the work of Galileo. So then, Cosimo and Eleonora were the first generation of the Medici family to live here, and they certainly left their mark. They designed the Bobbly Gardens, and such was their interest in things botanical that, in fact, Cosimo founded the Botanical Gardens in Florence and another set in Pisa. In fact, in Pisa, he also founded the university. So they left quite a positive legacy, but there was also an extremely scandalous story associated with their time there, and that involved their daughter, Isabella. Poor Isabella had been married to Paolo Giordano Orsini, and it certainly wasn't a happy marriage. It was a long-distance marriage. He would disappear for long periods of time, leaving Isabella in Florence. He took mistresses and he eventually decided that he needed to get rid of his wife in order to further his ambitions to marry somebody else. Isabella seems to have been aware of this. She was in fact making plans to leave Florence and go and live in France where her relative Catherine de Medici was married to Henry II. I think she thought she'd be safer if she lived at the court there. But as she was making her preparations, her husband came on one of his unexpected visits. He was planning to stay for a few days, but on the very first evening that he was there, it said that he went up to her bedroom to say goodnight to her and leant over to kiss her. And while he was doing that, without her knowing, he slipped a noose around her neck. And it was all quite premeditated because the other end of the noose was the rope that went through the ceiling to the floor below, where he had positioned some of his henchmen, who then pulled on the rope violently and strangled her. Although Paolo went on to marry someone else, exactly as he'd planned, you'll be pleased to know it didn't work out that well for him. Pope had been against the second marriage, and doing something against the Pope's wishes led to them having to live most of the rest of their lives under the radar, not respected or liked by anybody. So that's good, isn't it? Duke Cosimo was eventually succeeded by his son, who ruled as Francesco I, Although, in fact, governing wasn't really his thing. He liked to delegate most of that to his ministers and to dedicate himself to study. He was very interested in alchemy and astronomy and geography. Although he was also a great art collector and much of his collection became some of the founding works that were used to set up the Uffizi Gallery, 
It's thought that Francesco was very happily married to his wife Bianca, but in fact, sadly, they never had any children. So he was succeeded by his brother, who became Ferdinando I. That was an intriguing and possibly never fully explained handover, because what actually happened was that Francesco and his wife Bianca were both poisoned and died 11 hours apart. All of this while brother Ferdinando was staying with them. So, dot, 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 jewellery and conclusions from that. He became one of the more colourful dukes. He was known, in fact, as the spendthrift cardinal, and his high spending was particularly in evidence over his own wedding. He married Christine of Lorraine. She was welcomed to Florence in a most lavish set of celebrations, before, during and after the wedding, which in their entirety lasted a complete month. One spectacle described in one of the guidebooks I read as unequalled in the history of Florentine celebrations, which is frankly saying something, involved flooding the courtyard of the Palazzo Pitti so that they could reenact naval battles there with a whole fleet of miniature galleys. And although he was very happy to throw money around in this lavish fashion, it's amusing to me at least that Ferdinando chose for himself the motto Maestati Tantum, which translates as something like only with regal dignity. In many ways, he was a success for Florence because his high spending wasn't just limited to himself, but he was also into very lavish projects, which often worked out quite well. It's said that he managed to reinvigorate the economic situation in the whole city by his project to renovate the port of Livorno and make it very open and welcoming to foreigners. He was happy to guarantee asylum to all kinds of persecuted groups, such as the Huguenots from France or English Catholics or European Jews, and many of these groups flocked to Florence where they began to set up businesses and reinvigorated the commercial end of the city. And so that was said to have done a lot of good for the inhabitants of Florence. He was also had um, quite a lot of success with his foreign policy. And he was also a great patron of the arts, not afraid to spend a lot of money on great spectacles that kept artists and actors and musicians busy and in, and in well-paid employment for months at a time. He was succeeded by his son Cosimo II, who was a very different sort of character. He was known, in fact, as the Mild Grand Duke. Things he got up to included continuing to enlarge the palace a little bit, having eight children with his wife Maria Magdalena of Austria, and taking an interest in the cultural life of the city and particularly in science. He was Galileo's patron, and that sort of thing seems to have been of more interest to him than the boring business of governing. He said, for example, to have, quote, passed his brief life between luncheons, receptions and literary or scientific debates perhaps also the fact that he died at only 31 that means that there isn't so much to talk about in terms of his achievements. But his will was interesting because he stipulated, perhaps knowing that he was going to die young, that if his son Ferdinando wasn't an adult, he should be represented by two co-rulers, namely Cosimo's wife and Cosimo's mother. Be interesting to know how that worked out, would it not? And as Ferdinando was only 11 when his father died, that actually was what happened for several years. Unfortunately, in Ferdinando's own rule, Florence was again very badly affected by the plague. And one of the things for which he's remembered is the fact that he established sanatoriums and something called the Office of Hygiene. So he was involved in trying to help. He had always been interested in science. He was interested in his brother Leopold's academia. And it was while he was Duke of Florence that Galileo's trial took place. 
Unfortunately there, he wasn't so helpful. In fact, he neglected completely to support Galileo in any way, I dare say because he thought doing something against the Pope's wishes wouldn't do himself any good. But to his credit, he did regret this ever after, and when Galileo died, Ferdinando paid for and had erected a monument to him in Santa Croce. After Ferdinando came yet another Cosimo, so this is Duke Cosimo III, and this really is the beginning of the end for the Medici family. He had a very tempestuous marriage to Marguerite Louise of Orléans, who does seem in her own right to have been rather strong-willed woman. She did, for example, refuse to learn Italian, even though she lived in Florence and had three children with Cosimo de' Medici. Despite their three children, Cosimo turned out to be the last ruling Medici in the city because his older son, Ferdinando, another Ferdinando, turned out to be quite rebellious and died quite young before his father. The second son, Gian Gastoni, had no children. And then there was a daughter who also died childless. That was Anna Maria Luisa. In her old age, Anna Maria Luisa lived in the Palazzo Pitti. She retired into one wing became really quite antisocial, wouldn't have anybody she didn't know to come and visit, and spent her time on charitable works and on working on the family legacy. She spent a lot of time and money overseeing the work on the family mausoleum, or the Medici chapels, which are just behind the Church of San Lorenzo, and she made sure in her will that all the possessions of the Medici family would be left to the city of Florence and would always stay there. So that includes their various palaces, but also, reading the list from her will, quote, such things as galleries, paintings, statues, libraries, jewellery and other precious things, as well as saints' relics, reliquaries and their decorations in the palace chapel. And she stated very clearly that all of this was to remain in Florence, so, in fact, that it should be, quote, maintained as ornamentation of the state for public use and to attract the curiosity of foreigners, nor shall it ever be removed or transported outside of the capital and the Grand Ducal State. So because of her, all those wonderful things remained in Florence, and in fact, very many of them are the basis of the collection in the Uffizi Museum. The museum which, of course, the Florentines think of as, quote, the finest museum in the world. And let's face it, they may well be right. You could say that the wording of her will, which made sure that all these treasures remained in the city, were really setting up Florence for centuries to come to be a centre for people interested in art and culture, because otherwise the collections may well have been dispersed and could now be all over the world. So what are the main things to see if you go to the Palazzo Pitti today? I think probably one of the big draws is in fact the gardens, the Giardino di Boboli, or the Boboli Gardens, begun for Eleonora of Toledo, she and her husband were involved in the planning of the amphitheatre, for example, and the placing of fountains and sculptures all over the lovely gardens. But they took a scientific interest too. For example, it's said that this garden was the very first one in the whole of Italy to grow potatoes, and they also had a go at breeding silkworms here. It's a lovely place to just wander about and see what you come across. I could mention lovely things like the Isolotto, which is the fountain island in the middle of the ground somewhere, or the Viotolani, which is an avenue of cypress trees and Roman statues. All very lovely if you just come round a corner and happen upon it. And I might just mention one of the many, many monuments and statues which are there, and that's the Fontana del Bacco. It's a comic statue, at least I assume it's meant to be a joke. It was actually a monument to somebody who was a 
court jester for the Medici family and it shows him as a small, fat, naked little man riding a turtle. I don't think we know how accurate a depiction it was, but it's quite fun to think that maybe he really did look like that. Apart from the gardens, the main draw is the artwork. There are three museums in the grounds where you can see silver and porcelain and costumes, but inside, up on the first floor, is a suite of rooms known as the Appartamenti Reali, which is really an art gallery stuffed with paintings by many, many different artists, most of them Italian. But for the purposes of this episode, I want to just think about two of them, and they would be Raphael and Titian, both of whom have some paintings here, but also, in fact, paintings in other buildings across the city, notably in the Uffizi. Of the two, Raphael is the more closely connected with Florence. He was born, in fact, in Urbino, but he came to Florence in his early 20s, in about 1504, and it wasn't long before his reputation had spread. He was getting lots of commissions, things were going really well, and so he decided to stay. Raphael was particularly known for painting a lot of pictures of the Madonna. A lot of them actually were in churches or other sacred places. But there's one here, and it's called the Madonna of the Chair. As you will remember, there were so many paintings done of the Virgin Mary in this period that a lot of them have sort of subtitle names as well. And this one's the Madonna of the Chair because it shows Mary sitting in a low chair holding the Christ child on her knee. She has a very tender expression on her face and she's a sort of picture of motherly love. The Christ child, though, here as elsewhere, is painted very seriously, doesn't really look like an, a normal child. And even in the painting, there are pointers of what's going to happen to him when he's older. So there's a third character, another child, who's John the Baptist, and who's holding a reed cross in his hands, as if to remind us what Christ's fate is going to be when he grows up. This was one of Raphael's most popular paintings. In fact, in the 19th century, it was so popular that many, many artists wanted to do copies of it. And if you wanted to do that, you had to put your name on a waiting list and there would be a five-year wait until it was your turn. Another Raphael painting which is here is one called La Velata, which means the veiled lady. Art historians often compare it with the Mona Lisa, but say, in fact, that they prefer this one. The Donna Velata is a true beauty, dressed in a lovely dress lined with gold, with voluminous sleeves, and she's got a captivating look that really holds your attention. And the talk at the time was, who could this painting possibly be of? And there were various theories aired. So Vasari, for example, thought that it was Raphael's lover, Margarita Lutti. We know that he lived with her but never married her and we also know that when he died at 37 in his will he made provision for her. So that's one possibility. Other people say no, they think it was the daughter of a baker in Rome, just a beautiful girl that Raphael felt he had to capture in paint and to whom presumably he must have lent this lovely golden dress. And the third theory is that it must be a married woman of his acquaintance and the reason people think that is because in Rome at the time once women were married, they wore veils, and before they were married, they didn't. So the question is, why would she be wearing a veil if she weren't married? I think it's agreed that we probably won't ever know exactly who the lady was, but we do know roughly when the painting was produced, and that's in about 1514, 1515. Moving on to the second painter for this episode, Titian, he was much more a product of Venice than Florence, but just because he's got some famous paintings in Florence, it seems good to just mention him briefly. 
He was apprenticed as a teenager to a Venetian artist called Sebastiano Zucato, and he did many, many church paintings, but also commissions for people like King Philip of Spain and the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. He lived mainly in Venice until he was in his 70s, when he succumbed to the plague and died in 1576. At that point, his son sold his house and all of his paintings, and the result of that was that they ended up all over the world. But I'm just going to mention briefly two which are in Florence. One is called the Penitent Magdalene, and that's actually here in the Palazzo Pitti. dates from 1533. And it's a picture of Mary Magdalene believed to represent her something like 30 years after Christ's death, time which she has spent mainly in the desert on her own, repenting of her sins. It's a very arresting portrayal and one which Titian was obviously very proud of because he signed it. If you look at the ointment jar to the left of the painting, you'll see he's actually written on it or painted on it rather, Titianus. The second painting is better known. It's one of his most well-known paintings and it's not here, but it's in the Uffizi and it's called Portrait of Pope Julius II. It's an oil painting from about 1511 very popular in its day, which meant, in fact, that lots of different versions and lots of copies were produced. There's been some dispute about which is the original. It was thought to be the one in the Uffizi. More recently, people are wondering whether perhaps it's the one that hangs in the National Gallery in London. The reason it was popular was because it was a very unusual painting for its time. So it's a painting of one of the most important people of the day, the Pope, And while it's clear in the picture that this is a man of great standing, it's also a picture which makes you feel that you're really getting to know this man. It's revealing something of his personality, and that was unusual. A painting of such an important person would usually be very deferential, but Titian wanted to do more than that. He wanted to show the man behind the robes, if you like. Giorgio Vasari wrote a comment about this, in which he said that it was, quote, so lifelike and true that it frightened everyone who saw it as if it were the living man himself. That doesn't paint Pope Julius in a very good light, does it? And it's interesting to note that actually Vasari didn't say that until long after Pope Julius was dead. Perhaps he was frightened of him too. That then is more or less the end of my offerings on the Palazzo Pitti. I hope I've given you a few interesting ideas and stories to think about and enlighten your visit if you are indeed lucky enough to go at some point. I would certainly recommend it. I think the mixture of the inside palace and the gardens to wander around really make for a nice day out. Next time then, I'm not going to focus on any one particular building, but in fact rather on a person. And indeed, that's Galileo. He's come up in passing in this episode, so I thought the next episode would be a good moment to give him some proper time, talk a little bit about his life and why he was famous and how he ended up being tried for heresy by the Pope and what the end result of that was. So I hope you'll look forward to that. And for the meanwhile, just remains for me to thank you very much for listening this time. Grazie and to wish you goodbye. Arrivederci.